You've got an evening on your own at home. You've got no work to do. Does that ever happen? It's pouring with rain. You're stuck inside. What are your options for what you're going to do? What are your options? Well, there's the TV. How many channels on your TV? Depends if you've got Freeview or Sky or I don't know what other packages there are. Or then if, if there's not that, there's YouTube as well. How many things are there that you could watch on YouTube? And then there's the rest of the internet too. What could you look at on that? Probably got music you can listen to. Maybe you're so old-fashioned you've got some books you could read, some games you could play, some magazines and newspapers you could browse. Or maybe you could just pick up the phone and talk to someone. You've got a lot of choice, haven't you? Even on a day you're stuck inside and it's pouring with rain. We're in a society full of choice. We live lives full of choice. It would be interesting to ask the same question about someone 150 years ago. A lot less choice. So many choices. Lives full of choices. And because those choices are mainly offered to us by our society, some will be unwise. Some will involve sin. Some won't. You'll be perfectly free to do them. Uh, we saw a few weeks ago a diagram. Katie and Daniel. Have you got the diagram with circles? Ah, we saw this a few weeks ago, that we have choices that are matters of obedience or disobedience of God. Some, it's not a matter of obedience, but some choices are wise and some are unwise. And some choices aren't even that. There isn't a wise or unwise. You're just completely free. There is Christian freedom. Obedience, wise or unwise, and just completely free. And one of the difficult things in the Christian life is working out which of those circles your choices are in. We've been going, uh, we've been getting some help with those choices by going through 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. Let's turn to chapter 10 now. Chapters that give us help with our choices. And they do it this way. The Corinthians faced a choice about what they ate. Should they eat meat that had been offered to idols? Now, that's not a choice we usually face. But the answers given here give us principles to help with our choices. And we've got another diagram that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that puts together chapters 8 to 10 to give us some help with those choices. We can ask questions like, does the Bible allow it? If the answer's no, well, don't do it. If the answer's yes, well, you've still got more questions. Does my conscience allow it? If the answer's no, don't do it. If the answer's yes, well, what about this? What is the effect on other Christians? That's the subject of chapter 8. What is the effect on non-Christians? That's the subject of chapter 9. What is the effect on my spiritual life? That's the subject of chapter 10. Now, I think that's a helpful flow chart. By the way, I didn't make it up. I've, I've taken it out of a book from another preacher. Let's leave it up there for a minute, because although I think it's helpful, I think there is a potential problem with it, and it's this. It's a flowchart. It could make it seem like something a computer could do, especially with artificial intelligence these days. Any decision you make, you put into the computer, and the computer works through the flowchart, and you'd get your decision and your answer. 
and we could make the Christian life seem just like a computer program and a flowchart. But actually, chapters 8 to 10 are more about changing attitudes. So let's get rid of the flowchart, although it is helpful. Chapters 8 to 10 are more about changing attitudes. The Corinthian attitude was, we've got our rights and we're confident in our knowledge. God here is teaching a totally opposite attitude. Totally opposite in this way. Think of others' good and humbly recognise our weaknesses and dangers. Do you see it's opposite? The Corinthians say, we've got our rights. God here says, no, no, your attitude should be, what's for others' good? The Corinthians say, we're confident in our knowledge. We're superior to the country bumpkins. We're the Corinthians, sophisticated city dwellers. God says, no, no, humbly recognise your weaknesses and your dangers. Well, we're going to see that in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians tonight. I want to help us with making choices in a sinful society by doing this. Going quickly through all of chapter 10 and seeing how it fits together. I'm a little nervous of that because I'm trying to cover quite a lot of material. I hope next week to go back to some details. I'm not quite sure how, but I hope we'll go back to some details and look at them again. So we'll go through chapter 10, then I want to give some examples of how this applies to us, some applications for us today. So let's go through the passage. You really need the Bible open in front of you to see this. I think a paper one rather than phone where you can see the paragraphs and how it's structured. But there we are, that's up to you. But you do need it in front of you. Let's go through it and see how it all fits together rather quickly. First of all, be an athlete. This is chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 both ends chapter 9. That's why we looked at it last time. But it also introduces chapter 10. That's why we look at it this time. This letter was written to a church in Corinth, in Greece. Famous for the Olympics, Greece. The biggest athletics competition in the ancient world. But the second biggest athletics competition was the Isthmian Games. Less well known to us, but it was right on the doorstep of Corinth in walking distance. So they were familiar with this. Athletes had to be disciplined and self-controlled and self-denying. It was perfectly legal for athletes to eat cheeseburgers. I don't know what they ate in those days, so I'm going to have to stick with 21st century food. It was perfectly legal for an athlete to eat cheeseburgers every day, but it wouldn't help them run the 1,500 metres. So I presume they didn't and don't eat cheeseburgers every day because they want to win. And Paul in these verses says... Christians, we are heading for the finish line of the Christian race. But it is a race, and you need to keep going. And we don't want to give up and drop out of the race. And we don't want to be disqualified. So we need to be disciplined. And there are things that are allowable for us, but are not helpful for us. That's the argument in these verses. There are some things you could say, but the law doesn't ban it. And he's saying, but it won't help you to run the race. And the Christian race is so much more serious than the Isthmian or even the Olympic Games. 
the finish line of the Christian race is so much more desirable than the finish line of the Olympics. So these verses say, don't mess around with things that are sinful or maybe not sinful, but unwise and unhelpful. That brings us into chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, where we get a warning. Paul has given an illustration, the athlete. Now he gives a warning from history, and they both say the same thing, keep going. He's just said keep going from an an illustration. Now he says it from real history. A warning to keep going. Now, before we get into the warning to keep going, I first need to say we need this warning. You see, sometimes people think we don't because they misunderstand a Christian teaching, a real teaching of the Bible, but they misunderstand it. I will give an example of this misunderstanding. Someone I knew died when he was 16. I'd known him quite well. And at his funeral, I, I got this surprise because at his funeral it was said, we are sad that he's not with us. But we're happy for him. He is in heaven. You see, when he was a little boy, he asked Jesus to be his saviour. And once saved, always saved. And this was quite a surprise to me, having known him quite well, because there was no sign in his life that he was following Jesus. No interest in Jesus or salvation or forgiveness at all, as far as I could see. But they said, when he was a little boy, he prayed that prayer, once saved, always saved. So now he's in heaven, guaranteed. That is a misuse of the Christian teaching called the perseverance of the saints. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. If you're saved by Jesus, the proper teaching is if you are saved by Jesus, you will persevere. But it really is persevering. It's not just like the lobster in the lobster pot. Now you're in, you can't get out. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen effortlessly. It requires us to persevere. And those who don't persevere cannot claim to have been saved in the first place. So let's see the warning. In verses 1 to 4, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, Corinthians, you think whatever you do, you'll be fine because you've been baptised and you take the Lord's Supper and you've got spiritual experiences you're really pleased with. Well, so did the Israelites. So did the Israelites. They went through the Red Sea, he says in verse 1. And that was a sort of baptism. They ate the manna in the wilderness, he says in verse 3. And that's a sort of Lord's Supper. They drank from the miraculous rock. And that was definitely a spiritual experience, an amazing experience. But, verse 5 onwards, they didn't get into the promised land. They died in the desert. And not by accident, but under God's judgment. Why? Because they thought they could play around with idolatry and be safe. That's verse 7. And they had an idol feast. And all the uh, sexual immorality that gets associated with an idol feast. That's verses 7 and 8. And they wouldn't accept Moses' authority over them. That's verse 10. Do you see how this is directly, exactly applicable to the Corinthians? Idolatry, idol feasts, 
Not accepting authority. The, the Corinthians really didn't like Paul telling them what to do. And so in verse 11, Paul says, all of this is as an example to us. And the example says, you can't play around with sin and say, I'll be all right because I was baptized. I come to church regularly. I take the Lord's Supper. I've even had experiences of the Holy Spirit. Even that last one doesn't mean you can carry on in sin without repenting and think you'll be all right. No, the Christian life doesn't work like that. God's word is here warning people who think because of past experiences or Christian labels, they can turn a blind eye to a sin they don't want to repent of and it will be okay. And it says, no, that leads to death. But for those who are, instead of saying, I won't repent, are struggling with a sin, Finding it hard in the fight against sin, God instead has this encouragement, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You may still struggle. You may still feel your weakness. God may have his reasons to leave you like that, but he won't leave you without a way to escape the sin. That brings us on to verses 14 to 22. I hope you can manage with this rattling through at speed. I want us to get how the thing all ties together. Let's call this incompatible fellowship. The example of the Israelites warns us, verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, Paul had appealed to them about respecting others' consciences in chapter 8, and he had taught them about their witness to unbelievers in chapter 9, but now he tells them straight, you just must not go to the idol feasts. He'd given them various different arguments and helped them with difficult issues, but now he just straight says, you must not go to the idol feasts. And he uses the Lord's Supper to show this. He says to them, now you know, don't you, Christians, the Lord's Supper isn't just an ordinary meal. At the Lord's Supper, someone could come in and watch and think about Jesus. Someone could do that, couldn't they? Just come in and watch and think about Jesus. But the Christian does more. What more do you do? Well, you eat and you drink. And by eating and drinking, you're making a statement. Your statement you're making is, just like I need food to live, I need Jesus for my life. And you are also believing behind that symbol of the bread and the wine is a reality. Yes, they're symbols, but behind them you believe there's a reality, which is Jesus offered his body and his blood for you. And he's still alive and he's still offering himself to you. And you're still feeding on him by faith. Not by some sort of magic like the Roman Catholics believe of the bread somehow turns into the body of Jesus. No, but by faith you're feeding on him. That's verse 16, by the way. And there's another side to it. This is verse 17. By taking part in the church's meal, the Lord's Supper isn't just an individual thing, it's the church's meal, 
You are saying you are one with all the other people eating and drinking, the church of Christ. Now, Paul says, if you go to the idol feast, you are entering into a similar fellowship with the demonic powers that are behind idolatry. Yes, the wooden statue might be a nothing. You sophisticated Corinthians, you know it's a nothing. Yeah, but behind it, there's there's demonic power. And you're entering into a sort of fellowship with that demonic power when you go to that feast and eat that food. And so he says, you cannot do that and come to the Lord's table. That's like Prince Charles thinking he could have Camilla and Diana at the same time. And so verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you see what I said about Charles and Diana and Camilla? Yes, it's, it's, it's like a marriage unfaithfulness. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, will you win in this? No. No, remember the Israelites. He could strike you dead. Well, Paul now wraps up the three chapters in a conclusion. I'll call this rights or glory. Verse 23 to 33. He's wrapping it all up in a conclusion. The Corinthians' attitude has been, it's my rights. Now, you may or may not see that in verse 23, because uh, it's not been translated quite like that. Do you see it says everything is permissible? It's literally everything is in my power, or everything is my right. It's very contemporary language. It's saying, I have the right to everything. Don't you dare deny my rights. And Paul says, have a completely different attitude. Verse 23, ask Is it beneficial? Is it helpful to me running and finishing the Christian race? More importantly, verse 24, is it good for others? Don't have a my rights focus, have an others good focus. Now, the Corinthians say, verse 23, we are free, we've got the right to everything. Paul has said, no, you aren't. Don't go to the idol feast. That's just a simple don't. But there are areas where the Christian is free. And he does want to defend Christian freedom. Do you remember the circles at the beginning? Some people have such a mentality that the outside circle disappears. And there's no Christian freedom left. And God wants us to know we do have freedom. There are areas where we're just free to make your choice. Do what you like. So, verse 25. When you buy meat in the market, it might have been dedicated to an idol before you bought it. What should you do? Simple. Just buy it and don't ask. And you see, Christian freedom. Just buy it and don't ask. Verse 27. When you go around someone's house, you don't know what idol sort of ritual they've done with the food beforehand. I know this is very foreign to us, but try to think in terms of ancient Greece. So he says, eat whatever they give you without art. Just don't ask. Get on and eat. You are free. He says in verse 25 and 27, you don't need to raise questions of conscience. And behind this is, he's saying, because this is, this is an area of Christian freedom, it just isn't an area of conscience. You know, if you have a certain mentality, you can make everything an area of conscience. 
But the Christian life has big areas of freedom which are not supposed to be whittled down into almost nothing by asking questions because if you've got a certain mentality, you can always find an issue of conscience or always find a way this choice might be third cousin twice removed to a sin and I might get polluted by it. But Paul is concerned to preserve our Christian freedom. He says, just don't ask, just eat it. But even those freedoms should be restrained in certain situations. Here's an example, verse 28. Verse 28, if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. You see, imagine you go round to the house of someone and you were just going to eat whatever they gave you and not ask anything. You've got freedom, but your unbelieving neighbour first says, Oh, by the way, I ought to tell you as, a Christ, as you're a Christian, this food has been offered to the goddess Athene and is dedicated to her. Then Paul says, now don't eat it. Not that it's an issue of conscience for you. You know that doesn't matter. But for your neighbour's sake. Because your neighbour might look and say, well, these Christians clearly don't take their religion very seriously. These Christians clearly don't think, well, well, maybe they think Jesus and idols can mix and it's all all right. You and your conscience know it's all right, but they don't and you mislead them and you're a bad witness to them. So even though Paul is, and God is so insistent, we have freedom, he says, if it's going to mislead an unbeliever, even restrain that freedom. So that you do, verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks, the big division in their society, or even your fellow Christian, the church of God. Don't do anything that will cause someone else to sin or put an unbeliever off the gospel, if you can help it. Because your concern should not be, it's my right, I'm free to do it. Your concern should be verse 31, what? Verse 31. God's glory. And how in this context do you do everything for God's glory? In practice, that means verse 33, I'm not living for self. I'm living aiming that others should be saved. That in context is what it means to live for God's glory. I'm not living for self. I'm living for others to be saved. Now, I hope you've coped there with rattling through very quickly. We'll have to see what we come back to next week. I wanted to give you how it all ties together. But I also want to give you some applications. What should we do about this? You see, Christians in the UK have sometimes struggled to see how is this relevant to us. We don't generally have our food dedicated to idols before we eat it in the marketplace. We don't often get invited to idol temples. Well, I want to give three areas of application, although I might have to miss the third or just mention it. We'll see. First one is the most direct and obvious one, how we relate to other religions. You see, 20, 30 years ago, people would struggle in England to see how does this relate. But today you might get invited to an idol temple or something similar might happen. Here's some examples. Some Christians have got rather worked up to find that some meat sold in shops is halal. You know about halal meat? 
In other words, it's been prepared in a way that fits Islamic law. They get all hit up about this. How dare they sell halal meat in our, in our shops? Well, should you refuse to buy it? If you do buy it, are you guilty by association with a false religion? Verse 25 is our answer to this. Don't ask any questions, just buy it and eat it. There's no guilt by association in this sort of thing. That is not pretending Islam is really good and nice. No, it's a false religion. But there isn't guilt by association. Your Muslim neighbour gives you some food on a day they call Eid. Should you ask questions to find out what it signifies before you eat? The answer is verse 27. No, just say thank you and show some friendliness by eating it. If your Muslim neighbour says to you, come and eat with us to celebrate the end of fasting and to show our thankfulness to Allah for giving us the Prophet Muhammad, now that becomes a different matter. Then eating with them would be having fellowship with and taking part with idolatrous worship. Your Hindu neighbour is letting off a load of fireworks one night. If you talk over the fence and say how impressive the fireworks are, should you check first, are these fireworks for Diwali? If they are, I'm going to throw a bucket of water over them. Because otherwise I might end up being associated with with idolatry. No, just be a friendly neighbour. You don't need to ask the question. If you wish him a happy Diwali, now I think that is a step further. Because you are there affirming and approving and in some way entering into agreement with an idol feast. And this is very politically incorrect to say, but behind that idol feast are demons. That's the unavoidable conclusion of 1 Corinthians 10. So be careful. Do you see, we have to be discerning and wise to make right biblical distinctions. Let's get another application, a completely different one. Think of this. In Corinth, it was really hard to avoid idolatry. It was just there throughout the culture. Here is something that is hard to avoid in our society because it is there throughout the culture. Last week, a friend of mine sent me a photo on WhatsApp that I didn't get. It was a photo of his desk at work, and on it was a pot of jelly. And he said to me, um, he said, I ate food offered to idols without asking questions first. I didn't get it. What what, what was it? It was a pot of jelly, just in a clear cup, plastic cup. Do you know what he was talking about? Here's a clue, it was multicoloured jelly. Here's a clue, it's June. If you're still not getting it, the jelly, it it was various colours that I think were once rainbow colours. Are you getting it now? Yeah? He ate, it was a pride jelly, if you haven't got it yet. It was a pride jelly. Did you know there's such a thing as pride jelly? Yeah? He works for one of the big firms of accountants in London, and they brought round to everyone pride jelly. But they didn't tell him it was that. He just guessed it was. But he didn't ask any questions and just ate it. Was he right? Yes. Yes, I think that fits verse 27. Just eat it. You don't need to know it's a pride jelly. You're not guilty by association. But I think it's a little different in this situation. If you work at Loughborough Library, I don't know if you ever go to Loughborough Library, 
Do you notice what all the staff wear? All the ones I've noticed, a rainbow lanyard. Now imagine you work at Loughborough Library and you're given a rainbow lanyard to wear. Wearing that is different from eating the jelly. Because wearing that is making a statement of support for a cause. And, that co- and a set of beliefs that are against what God says. So how do you respond in line with 1 Corinthians? Remember, we are trying to win people, not win a culture war. So don't go on a tirade about LGBT evils. That, that's, that's trying to win a culture war, not, not people. Here's here's what you might think. Here's a clever Christian response. Get yourself a seven-striped rainbow lanyard. And then you can feel smug because you know that's the real Christian rainbow you see in the sky, not the six-striped rainbow of the pride flag. No, don't do that. That's just being smug. And no unbeliever will notice the difference and say you'll still look like you're supporting the LGBT cause. How about this? Wouldn't this be more in line with the attitude behind especially chapter 9, thinking about how to win unbelievers, how about asking your employer, could I find another cause that I could wear the lanyard for that, that shows support of a good cause? Let's say Water Aid or World Vision or something that surely unbelievers would recognise. This is actually a good thing. Oh, and that's a good that a Christian supports that cause. Here's a, very, here's a similar one on the same subject. A friend invites you round her house. And there she lives with her friend who you think is probably her same-sex civil partner. And she invites you round for dinner. What should you ask before you go? I would suggest, what would you like me to bring? Some dessert? A drink? You don't need to ask now, what exactly is the status of your relationship with that woman you live with? No, you don't need to ask. Do you do that for other people who you suspect might be proud or might occasionally kick their cat? No. So don't do it for this sin. You are not guilty by association. Go and be a good neighbour and a good friend. If later she invites you to her wedding with her same-sex partner, that is a different matter. To attend a wedding is not being just an observer or a friend. You will be called on, if you go to that wedding, to witness that I take this woman to be my lawful wedded wife. But God says there's no such thing as a woman taking a lawful wedded wife. Whatever our law might wrongly say, the law is saying that circles can have straight sides or or triangles can have four corners. God says a woman can't have a wife. And so to go is being more than just a friend and observer. It is being an approver. That will give you a very difficult conversation. You will have to be very gentle and sensitive and careful how you have that conversation that no, you cannot go to that wedding, although you still want to come and be her friend at other occasions. One more area of application, and it's a massive area. I will just have to uh, give you some pointers on it. Entertainment. Entertainment. Now, we find it strange, probably, that the Corinthians were asking, can we go to idol feasts? We think, what an odd thing to ask. Surely that's obvious. But it was so accepted in their culture. 
past generations would find it strange that we ask, can we watch people in various states of nudity simulating sex acts? Can we listen for entertainment to people with the, filling their mouths with blasphemy and foul language? But I can guarantee, I can say for definite that Christians watch films and TV programs and listen to music that fit what I've just described. It is so normal in our culture, just like idolatry was normal in their culture. Now, this is a big, big subject I'm sure you recognise and I've run out of time. Previous generations may be needed to hear 1 Corinthians 10, there is Christian freedom. You know, if you've got a fundamentalist sort of mindset, you could really raise questions about any film anyone watches because you could say, now, isn't your money eventually going to Hollywood and that's morally corrupt? Never watch any film. Or owning a TV, now, don't you pay a license fee and you're funding the BBC? And have you seen some of the stuff the BBC puts out? Now you're responsible for that, guilt by association. In 1 Corinthians 10, it does assert we don't have that guilt by association. There are questions you don't need to ask. You're just free. Past generations particularly needed to hear that. And if you've got a fundamentalist sort of mindset, you need to hear that. But today, we are more in need of hearing. Chapter 10 says, not everything is beneficial. We have become so lax. I read a a well-known pastor in America recently saying that you couldn't find any pastor or Christian leader before 50 years ago who would approve of half the stuff we watch. So much that Christians watch is in danger of making them drop out of the Christian race or a bad witness to others. Now, Big subject I've just raised. I'll have to leave you to consider that because instead I want us to end where chapter 10 ends. Where does chapter 10 end? In chapter 11, verse 1. Usually the chapter divisions are good. Here it's not. It ends in chapter 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. All of this must be done following Christ. Think about him. He came into this world to save sinners. That's what chapter 10 is about. And while he was in it, he wasn't of it. Do you remember he said to his disciples, that's why he's persecuted. That's why people hated him, because he wasn't of the world. He wasn't like the world. He didn't let his culture and his society, which had very different sins from ours, but it had its sins, and he didn't let them shape him. He didn't let his society set his standards. He was in it, but not of it. It's easy to keep out of society and separate. It's easy to merge into society, but to be in it and not of it, that's following Jesus. He was called the friend of sinners. And he turned up at such meals and parties the sinners had that the religious people disapproved of him. But he insisted on mixing with them. But he's also called set apart from sinners, as he kept himself blameless. He did what Paul's called us to do in chapter 10. He gave up his rights and freedoms for others, for you and me. 
He is the only human who's managed verse 31. Remind yourself of verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There is only one human who's done verse 31 fully, Jesus. Everything he did without exception was for God's glory. And so we must follow him. And surely aren't we glad to follow such a saviour? And we can follow him because he did verse 33. He came not seeking his own goods. Oh no. So not seeking his own good, he let his body be ripped open and nailed to a cross. He wasn't seeking his own good. No, he was doing verse 33. He was doing it all that we may be saved. Let's follow him.